stunning victory for Lori Lightfoot in this week's Chicago mayoral race and a stunning defeat for what many refer to as the Chicago political machine. But what, if anything, does that mean for statewide politics, especially at the State House in Springfield where Chicago politics exert a heavy influence? Welcome to Capital Cast, a regular podcast from Capital News Illinois. I'm Peter Hancock. This week, we talk with University of Illinois Chicago political science professor Christopher Mooney about the Chicago elections, and we'll have our weekly roundtable discussion with the Capital News Illinois team, plus Adriana Petrelli from the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin, talking about Illinois Supreme Court decisions, budget discussions in the State House, and much more. But first, the Chicago mayoral race. In a historic contest that featured two African-American women, it was Lori Lightfoot, a relative outsider in city politics, who won a stunning victory over the consummate insider, Tony Preckwinkle, chairwoman of the Cook County Board and the Cook County Democratic Party. To find out what all this means, not just for Chicago, but for state of Illinois politics as well, we spoke by phone with Christopher Mooney, He teaches political science at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and works with the U of I Institute of Government and Public Affairs. And we started off by asking him, was this, as many say, a big defeat for the legendary Chicago political machine? I I think, yes, absolutely. I mean, you you know, the the, the death of the machine has been, you know, that's been, it's, it's a very long process. Uh, you know, I mean, and 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 it's usually overblown its power. But it, you know, when you got the the chairman of the Cook County Democratic Party who can't win a single ward in a mayoral race, uh, you know, Mayor, you know, Richard J. Daley is rolling over in his grave. It, it's 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 a whole new world. Okay, first of all, can you tell us what is a political machine? What do people refer to when they talk about the machine? A, a machine, it, it, it's generally a strong organization. So official party organizations, sometimes they're sort of quasi-official organizations, but there's there's always an organization and the, and the organ, that's the machine is the organization. And the idea is that it's all about manufacturing votes. It's about generating votes. It's just really very little to do with ideology, almost nothing to do with theology. Um, it has nothing to do with um, making big changes uh, because the you know the machine is in power uh, you know it's you know it's status quo worked out so they're going to continue with the status quo uh, so it's 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 about in some senses it's about raw power rather than policy where policy is a way to you know you you can use policy to get power uh, the but the end goal is always power and control. And in Chicago, in particular, is it also based around patronage, the ability to maintain right. loyalty through patronage jobs? Exactly right. That's right. Yeah, that's what I mean by it's 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 a generation of power. I mean, patronage is not about uh, you know affecting pol- policy change in some way. I mean, they'll argue well, it's about uh, uh, representation and things like that. And but but mainly it's about uh, you know you got this job. Because, you know, because I gave it to you, therefore you need to get all your family members and friends or whatever to help me on the campaign. So beyond the mayor's race in Chicago, did we also see the same trend in like aldermanic races? Uh, you know, and I'm less clear. I think, well, number one, I think there's a couple that aren't 
decided yet. And number two, it's kind of hard to know how these people are going to shake out once they get into council. But there was a big turnover. And, um, you know, the the sort of epitome of the machine, sort of last vestiges uh, in a guy named Ed Burke, who's a, a, an alderman from the southwest side, he did win uh, his district, but he is under indictment. Well, I don't know if he's under indictment quite yet or under, maybe not indicted yet, but yeah. Certainly yeah, under federal yeah. charges. So, as so he's, at least, yeah, he's, at least, at least they're sniffing him around him in a pretty serious way. Uh, but, you know, uh, other ones are out. So Lisa's out. There's a couple of other ones that are old school that are out. Uh, and, you know, a lot of uh, all the many candidates were running as progressives. I mean, the progressive, uh, uh, I was talking to a guy at Trib yesterday, and he, th- he thinks that the, the progressive you know, currently, uh, the Progressive Caucus is a minor thing. You have 50 aldermen, is about seven or six or seven of them in the Progressive Caucus. And, but it looks like it's going to be about double that, maybe 15 or something like that. So still a minority, uh, but more significant uh, than it once was. Okay. And now, most importantly for us, mm-hmm. um, Chicago politics has long arms, as they say. Uh, mm-hmm. The machine not only elects people to city council and mayor, uh, but they were also able to elect uh, state legislators. Mm-hmm. Um, what, do, what do you think? <laughs> some. Uh, what do you think this means long term uh, in terms of the Illinois General Assembly? Uh, are, if this lasts, are we likely to see some changes here? You know, I think. Th- what we have largely, I mean, number one, you can't overblow and say the Chicago political machine. Really, there is no Chicago political machine. What you have are individual sort of organizations that are largely associated with particular politicians who, you know, it's sort of the last vestiges of, you know, when it was all sort of organized together. I mean, it used to be this real sort of uh, hierarchical structure where you had, uh, you know, had the ward committeemen and the precinct walkers and, you know, and everybody, you know, knew their place and it all went up to the county chairman who was the king, uh, or in this case, the queen. But uh, uh, now it's basically people have, it's, it's, it's more, I don't know what the analogy is, uh, but uh, it's, it's basically a sort of a, a, a series of principalities. You know, there's certain, certain people that have, an organization of their own that's personally loyal to them, but then they negotiate with other princes, so to speak. Uh, and sometimes they work together and sometimes they don't. So you get people like Madigan, you get people like Burke, uh, who are still, you know, some people in the, in the South side wards, uh, who are, you know, they're just, I mean, Madigan, he, he, he was raised on Richard J. Daly's knee and Richard J. Daly is the, you know, he is the epitome and he of of of, of a machine boss. And, uh, you know, interestingly, this is this is something that's interesting about Daly, too, is that the, the, the machine was actually dying out in Chicago like it was in Boston and in Kansas City and so forth in the early 1950s. Uh, because of television and, 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 you know, changes in the modern campaigning. But Daly, because he, I mean, he was, you know, raised on the mother's milk of, 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 of organizational politics, and he was the king of it. And when he got elected in 54 or 55, whatever it was, uh, you know, he, he brought it back, basically brought, put it on life support and brought it back from the dead and really energized it. And, you know, gave it life for another generation or two. But, you know, 
the, the the reason these things developed in the first place is because you had a lot of you know immigration, massive immigration, uh, and they you know the parties, especially the Democratic Party, generally in the big cities, they you know they said, look, we'll help you out, we'll give you social services, and you work, you know, you help us out by voting for us if you need you know help with a job, if you need uh, you know sure uh, yeah. reference or so forth. That's yeah, that's what that's all about, and that's you know that's not needed that much anymore because of civil service reform. And so looking at it today, would you say that uh, Speaker Madigan has sort of grown beyond the old daily machine and now is kind of a power setter of his own? Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. And and then not only is he uh, a power center of his own, um, I think and, – and, and at this point, it's not – I mean, it's it's all you know. The, the, there's always rumors of his imminent demise, but uh, um, I think at this point, I don't know of a. I can't think of a single person uh, who's got an organization and who's got this sort of personal loyalty and tentacles out there in, in, that's greater than he does. Uh, he is, you know, he's he's worked this for years. Uh, people, you know, who've worked for him, they're all in through government. They're very loyal to him. Uh, and to, you know, to, within reason, within you know what they can do, but uh, uh, yeah, so he, yeah, he's definitely uh, his own man, that's for sure. That was University of Illinois Chicago political science professor Christopher Mooney. And so now with our regular roundtable discussion about the week that was here in the State House. We have with us the regular Capitol News Illinois team of Rebecca Anzel, Jerry Nowicki, and Grant Morgan, along with Adriana Petrelli, who covers the State House and Illinois courts for the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Adriana, let's start with you. There was an Illinois Supreme Court decision this week that raised eyebrows all over the state. A person who had worked as a lobbyist for the Illinois Federation of Teachers was also able to become a member of the teacher's retirement system and get a teacher's pension just by working a single day as a substitute. Tell us about that case, and how did this even happen? Yeah, so that's right. So back in uh, the early 2000s, a bill was going through the Capitol, and it basically uh, had some, made some amendments to the Illinois Pension Code that allowed employees of statewide teachers' unions to establish service credits um, through the Teachers Retirement Fund. Um, the man was a lobbyist at that time and knew about this legislation. And because he had a bachelor's degree, he was able to actually apply and become a substitute teacher. And he did this in order to kind of take advantage of that measure if it were to pass because you had to substitute or be a teacher before the measure was signed by the governor. Um, so he did that. He substitute taught for one day in a Springfield area school. The measure passed. It was signed. And then his pension actually nearly doubled. Years later, um, the Chicago Tribune actually got a hold of the case um, regarding him uh, and what he had done. And they broke a big news story on it. The state legislature found out and realized that there was kind of a loophole in the measure. And so from then the uh, General Assembly decided to create a measure that basically struck down the, the law that they had created nearly five years prior. Um, so at that time, the, the bill repealed the, the 20, 2007 pension amendment and declared that he was not able to collect the money. So the man had paid in nearly 
$200,000 into this pension over the four years, and uh, the General Assembly said, you can have your $200,000 back, but you're not able to collect the pension. And at that point, the man said that that was unconstitutional because this money was promised to him by the state, right. and you can't take that away. So he put in this 190 some odd thousand dollars basically to purchase prior years of service right as if he had been contributing Correct. but was that just the employee's contribution uh was there there was no employer contribution matching that right that no so it was all just the employee at that point so he did over four years um he had to sell stocks and bonds and the briefs that ended up going to the court it said that he had to live this very skimpy lifestyle and he wasn't able to buy like groceries that he had always purchased and he wasn't able to live the normal life he was used to for about four years because he was paying I mean roughly 50 grand a year which is quite a bit of money mm -hmm. okay and so the Illinois Supreme Court uh, at first this was uh, the trial court uh, agreed with the pensions the pension system and said no you can't do this mm -hmm. uh, because the law that the legislature passed to repeal it was retroactive. Um, but then the Illinois Supreme Court reversed that decision. Uh, it, it, what was the basis for that? Yeah, so the Illinois Constitution prohibits reversing public pension benefits that were previously promised, and it's called the Pension Protection Clause. And so even if lawmakers choose to close off um, that loophole, since that money was already promised to him, it's his money, so um, it's up to the courts to decide what's fair game, and the, the provision allows for him to keep his money. And so they decided that although, you know, what he did was interesting, and while the court even said to an extent that they didn't really agree on the, on the basis of ethics uh, about what he did, he didn't break the law, and so he deserves the money and so from here uh, he's currently gets about $36,000 a year from pensions and after Thursday's decision that's going to nearly double. So they're basically saying it was bad public policy but nothing we can do about it now. Correct. Okay so in other Supreme Court action or Supreme Court inaction I guess in this case Rebecca Ansel had a story about the court deciding not to review a case dealing with the controversial abortion law that was passed in 2018 but the case also had some significance about the balanced budget provision in the Illinois Constitution and whether or not that's even enforceable. Tell us what happened there, Rebecca. So um, the Thomas More Society is a pro-life law firm based in Chicago. Um, since former Governor Bruce Rauner um, signed House Bill 40 into law, which allows taxpayer funds to be spent on abortions um, under Medicaid, um, they've challenged the constitutionality of that. Um, they have two main arguments, but the most applicable here is that they argue the General Assembly never allocated funds or estimated how much money House Bill 40 would cost taxpayers and then didn't allocate funds toward that. So um, they you know, went through the judicial process, um, asked the Supreme Court to take up their case. Um, the Supreme Court ultimately declined it. But what's interesting here is that three Supreme Court justices wrote a dissenting opinion, which normally they don't, they don't do that. It's almost unheard of, really. Uh, if they decline a case, they just say, we decline the case. But in, in this case, the people who wanted to hear the case wrote a dissenting opinion. 
Right, and they did that because um, what Peter Breen, who was the attorney who would have argued before the, case, the Supreme Court had they taken the case, what he was arguing was um, in part, so in, in Illinois' Constitution, um, there's, there's a provision that says that the General Assembly cannot allocate more money to be spent than it estimates Illinois will have in revenue each fiscal year. So um, he, what, what the three dissenting justices had said was that the Supreme Court should have taken up this case to at least hear arguments, um, not to leave this decision of what's called, known as a political question doctrine to the appellate court, the level below them, to, mm. to decide, to have to grapple with. Because it's important that um, they were arguing the Supreme Court should have had to decide that for them. It's, it was an important issue, they thought. Okay, and it's well known that Illinois hasn't really had a balanced budget in a long, long time. Uh, so I guess the question is whether or not that provision of the Illinois Constitution really means anything. Yeah, one interesting thing that I learned in reporting on this story that I didn't actually put in there, um, Anne Lucine is, is mentioned in my story. She was at the Constitutional Convention in 1970. Um, she helped write that article of the Constitution. Um, she had said that if somebody had wanted to to challenge the General Assembly on on passing a balanced budget, you can't do it through the Supreme Court because what the General Assembly could do, if the Supreme Court came back and said, you know what, we want you to pass a balanced budget, all the General Assembly has to do is say, okay, we estimate that um, that we have even just one dollar more in revenue than what we want to spend. Done. So that's never going to work. What, what the, somebody would have to do is to challenge the treasurer and the comptroller who control the disbursement of funds and say, you are not dispersing what is a balanced budget. And that's, that's really what you'd have to do, and that's not what Peter Breen and the Thomas More Society did here. Okay, so speaking of the budget, uh, the legislature has been busy writing uh, different provisions of the budget bill, hearing from state agencies. There, uh, Jerry Nowicki, there was a lot of action in the state house this week about higher education and how much money they're going to get. A lot of rallies were taking place in the state house. Tell us what was going on there. So there, there appears to be a lot of optimism for higher education. Um, the U of I is asking for a 16% increase to their funding. Um, Community College are asking for a 5% increase to their funding. Um, and uh, Governor Pritzker just signed a bill um, that would allow universities to uh, retain AIM High grants that um, go to students with, that are, have academic performers but don't have the financial means to um, obtain college uh, funding. And um, he's also uh, proposed 40% uh, increase to that funding for his uh, next fiscal year budget. Okay, so during the budget impasse that lasted a couple of years, universities, as I understand it, were hit a lot harder than other state agencies. Isn't that right? Right. So Tim Colleen, U of I's uh, system president, he called 2016, uh, which was right in the middle of the impasse, he called it the year that never was. And I'm looking at uh, numbers here that show they, they got about $200 million that year. Um, that was down from 600 million plus uh, the, the fiscal year before it. And um, what they're asking for in this year's budget is just that they're funded at 2015 levels, uh, not even higher than that. In 2010, they got more than 800 million in state funding uh, when adjusted for inflation. And right now, it'd be about six or 700 million. 
uh, in their budget request. And this has real consequences because we've been hearing about the growing number of Illinois high school graduates who are now going to school out of state. Uh, uh, what was it? Western Illinois University had to go through some pretty massive layoffs this year. Uh, so the lack of funding for higher education is really having a lasting impact on those universities, isn't it? Yeah, it was about half of the uh, half of the students that are going to a four-year institution um, in 2017, I think it was, left the state um, for that. And Tim Colleen said, you know, we're the golden goose in terms of keeping students in Illinois and building the tax base because people who graduate from these universities tend to stay in Illinois. Um, and if you don't give them access to that, if they go to college out of state, they're going to stay there. They're not going to come back to Illinois and build that tax base here. But I thought one of the interesting things was from uh, Senator Chapin Rose. He questioned uh, that, you know, all of these funding increases, they sound good, but one of the reasons we're getting there is because Governor Pritzker's uh, plan to um, increase the pension ramp and make f funding available that way. By delaying some pension payments. Right. Yeah. And he asked the U of I, you know, what their stance was on that. And U of I said, we got a team researching it, and we'll be happy to have them reach out to you. Uh, but obviously, they want that funding yeah. increase. Okay, and finally, let's turn to Grant Morgan, who's been covering the lead-up to the 2020 census. Uh, yes, it's a year away, but a lot of people in Illinois have been concerned about this for some time, uh, concerned about making sure that Illinois gets an accurate count because there's a lot at stake. Uh, Grant, you have a story that's just out about money that was appropriated last year uh, for some outreach to make sure that um, Illinois was getting an accurate count. Tell us what's going on with that. Uh, I basically would use that as an illustration to show how unlikely it is that extra state dollars would get out um, this year for it. Uh, the story is that last year was the first time the state legislature appropriated any money specifically for census outreach. That was $1.5 million given to the Secretary of State's office, who would then run the grant administration and get it out. Now, that money still has not gone out yet, and census outreach advocates are a little uh, frustrated with how long it's taken. Is there time uh, between now? Because the census has it gets started next year, and I guess it's uh, the 1st of April is the count day. Uh, is there time between now and then to get that money out? And the Yes, um, later this month, uh, that $1.5 million, the, the recipients of that will be announced. So that's good on that end. But um, there's also four different bills in the current legislature that would give anywhere from $25 million to $33 million for the same purpose. Um, and the concern with that is that if it does happen, it wouldn't happen until the end of the session uh, be appropriated. Okay. And then by that time, it still has to go to, you know, it still has to be appropriated then to the different um, groups doing census outreach. And then once the census outreach groups get it, they have to figure out what they're going to do with it. And by that time, it's probably going to be next year already. And that's it for this week from Capital Cast. This is a production of Capital News Illinois, a reporting project of the Illinois Press Foundation. I'm Peter Hancock.